6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Well, we're in the seventh session of our exploration of the Epistle to the Hebrews, and we are exploring chapter 6 tonight. And uh, as you know, the uh, first seven chapters are presenting Jesus Christ, his Christology, his, uh, the, the new and better deliverer, God, the God-man, the first couple chapters. And then we notice as we go through these 13 chapters that there are five specific warnings and some people see them as interruptions of a theme, when in fact they're the real purpose of the, the epistle. Warning number one occurs in the second chapter. What he's really doing is addressing all the pillars of Judaism. He's writing to Jewish believers and trying to demonstrate how Christ replaces that. He's better than the angels. Those are very highly regarded within, the, in, in, within Judaism. He's an apostle better than Moses. It's interesting that the writer speaks of Jesus as an apostle. That's one of the reasons the writer didn't sign it, because he didn't want to be guilty of what an attorney would call supererogation, intruding on an office, because Paul saw himself as the apostle of the Gentiles, not the Jews. But in any case, apostle better than Moses, a leader better than Joshua, and uh, that's where we picked up the second warning last time. And a priest better than Aaron. As we got into chapter 5, we're starting to get at the priesthood subject. We're going to discover that the priesthood, particularly the Melchizedek priesthood, will occupy us from chapter 7 through chapter 10. But last time we were in chapter 5, and we encountered the prelude to the third warning. There are five warnings, but warning number 3 is the real bone in the throat for most Bible students. We're going to be dealing with what is arguably the biggest riddle in the New Testament, the most troublesome riddle for the Christian. And it starts in chapter 5, the the, the groundwork is set, but then is is climaxed in chapter 6, our subject for tonight. Later on, we're going to talk about the better covenant, better sanctuary, better sacrifice, and then the practical close of the book, the hall of faith, and uh, so on. So that's the quick snapshot of where we are. And... uh, and there are five warnings altogether. Last time we got introduced to the second, to we to uh, cha- in chapter five, we had warning number two and got introduced to uh, warning uh, number three, just beginning. And so tonight we're going to deal with what many people regard as the biggest uh, difficulty or problem text in the New Testament. And so, to, to, so that you pick up the tone, we'll review a little bit of chapter five. That first 10 verses redefine a priest. And those topics I'm not going to review in detail because we're going to take those up in detail when we get to chapter 7. But from verse 11 to 14, the last uh, uh, four verses of the chapter, the writer addresses, uh, he rebukes his readers for allowing themselves to stagnate. 
So as we, we're not Jewish, but as we read this, we might find the shoe pinching a little bit because what they're guilty of, probably most of us are also guilty of. And he's setting the stage in those five verses for the warning that's coming in chapter 6. So that's why I want to review this last few verses. The, the, chapter 5 dealt with five contracts. Jesus is a better position. He's a better priest. The new priesthood is based on a better covenant. And the priesthood functions in a better sanctuary. And the new priesthood is based on a better sacrifice. He's setting the stage for chapter 7 coming. But you can't miss, as you read the book of Hebrews, you'll notice better, 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 better. In every way... Jesus is better than the past, whether it's a sacrifice, a priesthood, whatever. Jesus, each thing that was highly regarded within Judaism, Jesus is one better. That's his primary point here. But then this rebuke follows. It's interesting, as the author, and I obviously believe it's Paul, so I may call him Paul sometimes, but realize that some people uh, uh, will point out that we don't know that for sure. But anyway, the author develops, as he develops the topic of the priesthood, He's going to point out that we're leading into stuff that's not for babes, that it's strong milk, it's for mature. In fact, he's arguing to go to spiritual maturity. So stagnation is what he's accusing his listeners of, the failure to progress towards spiritual maturity. That's probably the real burden of the entire epistle, is to ad admonish his listeners to move on to, to grow, not just be comfortable with the milk of the word, not moving on to strong food, stronger foods. And we're going to discover that the real hazard that his listeners face, because they're Jewish, they are considering or being tempted to return to Judaism because they're getting persecuted. And to avoid the persecution, they are tempting to return to Judaism, and he's pointing out to them that that's not an option. So let's just review a few of the last verses, the last chapter, to get warmed up here. Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. That's a, not a very tactful way to approach his listeners. But you guys are dumbbells. You're lazy. Whatever. You can fill in the blanks. Of whom we have many things to say, speaking, of course, of the high priest that he's building the case toward. The, of whom, of course, is, is both Melchizedek himself and more precisely the order, the priesthood that he represented. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because we're going to hit that hard when we get to chapter 7. But the main point is the writers see, being very straightforward with these people that they are in no condition to receive what's coming. What he's saying in effect, you guys aren't ready for chapter 7 and what goes because you're lazy. You're still wallowing around in first grade arithmetic, and we're moving on, you see. And so he, he feels obligated to give them the subsequent teaching, but he's trying to highlight that they're not really ready for it. He calls them immature, backward, untaught, and dull of hearing. I want to ask you for a show of hands of how many, who you think is the most immature one here, or backward, untaught, or let me put it another way. Are any of you, do any of you feel that you're not immature, backward, untaught, and at all of hearing? We've got a couple, okay. I'm not going to go there. I'll leave it there, all right. The Greek word for dull is nothros, which really means to have no push. In other words, lazy, sluggish is the concept there. Moving on to verse 12. For when, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers... 
ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, not of strong meat. So you guys shouldn't be taught now, you should be teaching. Sort of saying, you shouldn't be here tonight, you should be out leading a Bible study. Sort of, that's the flavor. You, should be, you ought to be teachers. And you have need for one to teach you again, which you have the first principles of the oracles of God. And it's going to be interesting to notice what he lists as the first principles, the stuff you should have outgrown. We're going to get that in a few, in a few verses from now. You have, such as have need of milk. He's, he's criticized, nothing wrong with an infinite sucking a nipple on a bottle. But if you have a 12-year-old son or a 15-year-old son and he's walking around the house sucking a nipple on a bottle, it, it, it isn't, doesn't have quite the charm as a one-year-old might have, okay? <laughs> That's sort of the, the, the dramatization here. First principles, what on earth are the first principles of oracles of God? It startled me when I was preparing this. Most of the first principles are things I would have thought would have been listed under strong meat. No, no, no. They're going to be, you know, it's not the... He's accusing them of regression, going backwards, failing to advance. And the problem with these topics you're going to see is that they represent milk, not strong meat. Well, if they represent milk, I'm really interested to find out what he called strong meat when we get to chapter 7, but that's next time. He's saying they need to grow spiritually in order to show ability in teaching instead of being retaught the same things over and over and over again. That may be true of many of us in this room, that we sit patiently and in a, in a Sunday sermon or even here on some, some of our courses and, and, and you've had it all before. Hey, it's time to move on is the idea what he's saying here. What do we mean by stronger food? See, the milk of the word, that term is used all through the epistles. It refers to what Jesus Christ did on earth. His birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's all in the Gospels. We've all been exposed to that. We may not have exhausted all its implications, but that's... Uh, that's sort of foundational. The meat of the Word appears to be focusing on what Christ is now doing in heaven. As we talk about eschatology, we talk about the seventh week of Daniel and the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation and Armageddon. Wait, 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 wait a minute. There's a whole aspect of eschatology. What's going on in heaven during all that time? And that affects us more than what's going to be on the earth. We'll talk more about that later. This is all going to be developed in the subsequent chapters. Finishing up chapter 5 here. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Unskillful in the word of righteousness. Failing to make practical use of knowledge. They possess, makes them unskillful. You might have, when you go home, you might take a lot of notes when you get home, you put them on your bookshelf. You got all kinds, you've been to conferences for years, you've got all these notes from the great conferences and so forth. Great. Unless you're making use of the, that knowledge, you're unskillful. If you're learning all these exciting things here or in your home Bible studies or whatever, you need to be passing them on. That's really the flavor here. As long as a believer fails to apply what he learns, he remains a baby. You will not grow it. And by the way, the best way to learn the book of the Bible is to teach it. You really want to learn about Genesis or Revelation or whatever, teach it. You stay, work a little bit, stay ahead of your class, not hard to do, just keep at it. So how about you? Does any of this apply to you? This is a, he's talking to the listeners, readers of, of uh, the epistle. Put your own self there if it fits. Either use it or you lose it. 
is the idea. The last verse in the chapter, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Full age, mature, maturity is what he's talking about. The word there is teleos, which means purposeful or complete, having achieved the purpose, in other words. All believers are to make proper use of what they know. Again, use it or lose it. Okay, that gets us to the chapter of interest tonight. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection or completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You need to leave the babyhood and milk and all of that, press on to meat and maturity. And if you don't, you're going to make an... You're going to, he's threatening them that you'll be making an irreversible decision that will permanently keep them in a state of spiritual immaturity. Ah, now that's a little twist here. There comes a point where if you don't progress, you'll lose the opportunity to progress further. And that's disturbing. That's disturbing. That's going to develop as we go here. Not laying again the foundation... These foundational truths are fundamental to the Jewish faith. Remember, he's talking to Jews, so you put a Jewish complexion on these foundational truths. Of the doctrine of baptism, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. These are all doctrines within Judaism. And this we will do, the laying this foundation, if, if God permit. This going on to perfection, they mentioned in the previous verse, is, uh, in other words, go beyond mere basics. And that's the primary imperative of, war of warning number three we're going to see. Well, what beliefs are we talking about here? There are three pairs. Two of them have to do with conversion, repentance from dead works. And that's a reference actually to their Jews, to the Levitical system, which incidentally will prove to be temporary. It came to the end with the death of the Messiah. We'll be talking about that in chapter 7 more. And faith toward God, no surprise. That's the, but what's in view here is the once and for all turning to the Messiah, a positive commitment to conversion. Now, when a Jew got baptized, they were used to baptisms, but when they baptized in Christ, that was their way of, of dismissing all the past. The next two have to do with ceremonial elements, baptisms. That, that is, here it's referring to Levitical multiple baptisms, and that marked the, 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 the baptism in Christ was a, should have been the end point of all of those. And the other thing is laying on of hands. And that was the formal way of ordaining someone to an office, imparting blessings on the one hand or appointing to some officer. And we do that today. I have pictures in my office of Nan and I having a group down at Newport Beach laying their hands on us when we elected to go full-time into the ministry and all of that. And so forth. It's a New Testament practice, not just Old Testament. It's a Jewish practice, but it's Widely used throughout the New Testament also. And then the last two are eschatological foundations. Resurrection of the dead. That's not a New Testament idea. That's the, one of the oldest doctrines of the Bible. It's in the book of Job, chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And not mine eyes shall behold in another, so forth. So that's in Job 19 and Isaiah, and Daniel, and elsewhere. And of course, the eternal judgment. It's all through the Old Testament, 
It's climaxed not with the judgment seat of Christ. It's climaxed with the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. But in any case, these are the foundational beliefs. Great white throne judgment, lake of fire, and all of that. So those are foundations. And what's interesting, these are foundational. This is an advanced course. This is the preliminary stuff. Wow, that surprised me. See, I would not have sensed that. But now we get to the primary riddle of the entire New Testament in the minds of many. Major challenge. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 specifically. Let's just read it through, and you'll see why it troubles so many people. Text read in English as follows. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted for the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now the average person reading that, if you ask him, does that mean you can lose your salvation? It sure sounds like it, doesn't it? That, you know, that this is where it really, it usually surfaces to challenge this view that you can't lose your salvation. Now to get at that, you need to know what your salvation is. It's got three parts. Justification is past tense. Sanctification, present tense. Glorification, future tense. But Romans 8 says you are, all three are preserved for you. Hmm. So what do we do with this verse? Now this is the third of five major warnings. Let's get it in context. The first warning was danger of drifting back in chapter 2. Danger of disobedience in chapter 3. Now, this is sort of a collection of a couple of things, but progress to maturity, the peril of being dull of hearing, which sets this up, and then this particular warning, of which there are 16, at least 16 different views, and we'll get at that. The next one we'll encounter will be in chapter 10, and the final one in chapter 12. But the, they all build one upon the other. They are a sequence, and they're all interrelated, as we'll see. We've been through the previous one, but now we're going to hit the big one. If we get through this one, the rest are easy. <laughs> they have a unity here. All five warnings are a unit. They go together. They complement each other. Each builds on the other. Each intensifies right up to the fifth one. Now, what's something else that many people miss, the writer of this epistle relies heavily on a specific event that occurs in the book of Numbers, Numbers 13 14. Israel's exodus, and they, get, they go through this 11-day journey to Kadesh Barnea, have the opportunity to go into the land and get their inheritance, and they haven't got the guts to go. And we'll, re we'll review tonight Numbers 13, 14 carefully, and we'll show you some things some people usually miss. But that's used by the writer of Hebrews as the foundational example here. The exodus generation was a redeemed people. They were redeemed by what? Blood on the doorpost and on the lintels. They're redeemed people. And this redeemed people failed to heed God's instruction and they were judged for disobedience. Did they lose their salvation? Of course not. Were they sent back to Egypt? No. They died. That's not the end of it. That's the end of their life. But they died without getting their inheritance, the land. Okay. All these, the entire epistle, and certainly all these warnings, are written to believers. Let's understand that right up front. Many people who have had difficulty with this passage we're dealing with have tried to figure, well, gee, maybe they weren't really believers. 
And these do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation. Nowhere in this epistle is it not taken for granted that they're justified by Christ. So there's no, these, this, we have the eternal security. If I wanted to take the time to beat this to death, we could put here a dozen passages to nail eternal security. I'll use John 10, 28 and 29 as one. I'll use Romans chapter 8, the last half of that chapter, as another one. And we could go on and on and on. But that's, I think we've covered that enough so far. The warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. That's really what it's all about. Now these warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards. Yes, there are things that are at risk. Yes, there are things that are lost, not your salvation though. Why? Because your salvation was paid for 100% by Jesus Christ. That is your justification. But your privileges or rewards for faithfulness will be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ and that's where we're headed to the final exam. Everybody before that judgment seat is saved. Some are going to fare very well and get crowns and this and that and whatever. And others are going to get through that experience by the skin of their teeth. They, all, of, and, uh, all of them are saved. So what is at stake then? What are they going to lose? Not their salvation. Rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it's really at all about. And you can't, uh, you can't escape any of this by trying to apply this to other groups. This is us. Even though we're not Jewish, it still applies to us. The burden of the epistle of Hebrews is not trying to rescue sinners from going to hell. It's bringing sons to glory. It's taken for granted that the reader's already saved. The question is, what next? So here's the primary riddle, verses 6 through 4 through 6. The danger of relapse and forfeiting the inheritance is the issue. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves, son of God afresh, put him to open shame. Okay. Were these really believers? It's amazing how many commentators try to say, well, gee, maybe they weren't really believers in the first place. They were once enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, of the millennium. And it's amazing how many commentaries are filled with people trying to see, well, they were once enlightened, but they didn't really get it. Uh, they've tasted the heavenly gift, but they really didn't swallow or something. And uh, they were made partakers, but maybe not all the way. I mean, it's it, it, it really interesting to see learned scholarship try to wrestle out from the direct meaning of the Greek. Can these who have, can they lose their salvation? That's the thing that will lurk. That will bother you until you really nail this thing. So the question that I left you with last time is how does this passage impact your views of eternal security? Is there a footnote? Is there a caveat? Are you saved but? Is there a parenthesis in your commitment? Or are you really certain? So I ask you to prepare for this session to re-examine Numbers 14, and we're going to go through that, and study carefully this chapter, and formulate your own anal analysis. If your students here to have you turn in your papers, you explain what you think that passage means to you. There are 16 different views that I conceivably could come up with. In fact, I, I'm going to show you a 17. 
One of the alternatives, they were professing but not real believers. That's one approach. Well, they claimed they were per se, but they weren't really. That's, that's one approach. You can destroy that, by the way. Others say they were true, truly saved, but they were permanently lost. That's what the Arminian would say. The Calvinists would argue you can't lose it once you got it, but you may not have it. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Others say the word impossible doesn't really mean impossible. Maybe it just means difficult. <laughs> okay, that's not what it says, but that's the view. Some say that we can repeatedly get lost and resaved, lost and resaved, but there's a limit to that. That's another strange discussion. And some of them say, well, this really refers to the Old Testament sacrifices. That's really out in left field. Some say this whole argument was just hypothetical, didn't really apply. And there, each one of these has variations, so I'm not going to take you through 16 variations. That's the flavor of it. There are vari variations of all these. Okay. Let's jump in and take a look at the text. For it is impossible for a group. What group? For those who were once enlightened and have tasted for the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The, the verse 4 is the first verse of a th three-verse sentence. This is one long sentence that's going to un un unfold before us. We have three qualifiers. It is impossible for people that fit these three, there, there's five altogether, five qualifiers that were once enlightened. What do we enlighten? The word is regenerated. Regenerated. And uh, it's the same word as used in, as in Hebrews 10.32 and elsewhere. It means regenerated by the Holy Ghost. They were saved. You can't escape that. There are a few places where that word is not as clear, but in Hebrews 10.32, it nails it. And... Uh, Okay, who tasted the heavenly gift. They say tasted, well, it means he didn't really savor it. Well, I got a problem with that because that in Hebrews 2.9, that same word is used of Jesus Christ who tasted death for every man. I don't think he sipped. You know, I don't think he had a sample. He tasted death. There's nothing halfway about that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>